Three-button blazers, short hair, long hair, cars that are fuel-efficient repeat themselves when gas is expensive, and vehicles that are gas guzzlers repeat themselves when fuel is not expensive or when you have people with enough money to buy gas no matter how much it costs. Fractals repeat themselves in history. Okay, fractals, reoccurring patterns. Museum of Science and Industry Chicago has a whole segment on fractals. Okay, so like, like a, um, a spiral, a true spiral, like a conch shell, not a conch shell, but a snail shell is a spiral. It's a fractal. It repeats itself. There's also fractal branching. Okay, an example of that would be like a snowflake or the way a river fans out. Uh, Mississippi River, National Guitar, Graceland, Paul Simon. You know the album, don't you? Okay, the way the Mississippi branches out in Louisiana. Okay, also you have a fractal represented in the limbs of a tree, the way the tree branches, branches out. Then there, there are um, the golden ratio. Okay, the golden ratio is this fractal that is a, well, the aspect of a portion of the whole relates in such a way that the factor is 1.6, something, 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 something. So say that you have a line that's uh, AB in length, okay? The A plus B as it relates to A, a subsegment of the larger line is the golden ratio, assuming the ratio is 1.6, 1.8033987. Uh, a Veronoi pattern. Veronoi pattern? Veronoi pattern is every point within a given region being closer to the seed inside that region than it is to any other point outside that region. Each point along the region's edge is equidistant from the two nearest seeds. It's a fractal. Think about cracked mud or giraffe skin. That's a Veronoi pattern. Now, you may ask, why is that important? It's important if you're in the logistics or packing business because people who can develop Veronoi algorithms can better put things together. Bubbles, bubble baths, is a Veronoi pattern. Children, okay, this repeats itself. Children will always be embarrassed by their parents. And kids will always do things to make their parents wonder why. To quote the great theologian Stephen King in The Colorado Kid, sooner or later, I can't believe no one said this before Stephen King said it, but sooner or later, everything old is new again. Page 1033, Revelation 9, verse 13. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet. And I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels, release the kraken, release the hounds. Okay, have a little fun with that because it's going to get dark in a second so we won't be having fun then. Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode with them. They wore breastplates, the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. And fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. 
For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. The texts are going to get more challenging. They're also going to get more graphic, more metaphorical. And part of our problem with the book of Revelation is that we don't talk like this. We don't think like this. We don't imagine like this. But to give you a taste of apocalyptic literature with a contemporary spin, think about it this way. See if you can understand who I am describing. The men from the north who had purple. Their heads were purple. And horns growing out of their heads one horn on each side of their purple head, girded their loins for battle on the dark field in the windy city against those magnificent yet evil bears. That's apocalyptic literature describing what? Yeah, exactly, okay? But we don't think like that. We don't talk like that. And so when we come to a text like this, we scratch our heads and wonder, and everything is incredibly symbolic. Four horns, a sign of strength, perfect strength. This altar, this place where God resides, it is the corner office. It is the penthouse suite. It is the place from which orders come. And from that location, Jesus, or an angel, makes a proclamation. Release these four angels. Release the kraken. Release the hounds. They've been held at this place called the Euphrates. Now, we know that the Euphrates is an actual river in present-day Iraq, but we're probably not talking about present-day Iraq. We're talking about the reality that in the Old Testament, the bad stuff came from that area in the world. The conquering armies of Babylonians came from that area. It's kind of like if we were to say today, it's a David versus Goliath matchup, okay? We really don't mean that the individual is from the line of David, nor the other individual is of Philistine derivation. What we mean is a symbolic representation of a little dude that's really small throwing a rock against a big dude who's really big and is probably going to crush the little dude, but ends up losing to the little dude. That's what we mean, right? Likewise, this metaphorical language describes these four angels, these four evil angels who are in charge of this amazingly huge army. Is there a connection to the sixth seal in chapter 7, verse 1? Yeah, probably. That's what Beale would argue. A connection to the sixth bowl in chapter 16, verse 12? Yep, again, the thought that revelation repeats itself in order to make a point. These four demonic beings, these four evil angels, have control over this gigantic army that even by today's standards would be huge. Combined all the armed forces in the world and you don't get an army that's 200 million strong. Maybe if you arm you know, 20% of the nation of China with, I don't know, knives or something, but, but there's no force on earth like that. Now think about this 2,000 years ago when 200 million people was a factor that was greater than the world's population, assuming we have population figures from the first century. 
John first hears the number, the sound of horses rushing into battle. Think Lord of the Rings, the two towers, the army of orcs outside of Helm's Deep. You know what I'm talking about, right? And then we get this close-up spec sheet on what these individuals look like. Fire and brimstone, evil creatures, bringing death and torment is what is being articulated by the description. But please understand the metaphor. Because probably if we saw an army of 200 million horses that looked like they had a lion's tail and a, a lion's head and a serpent growing out of their tail, we would be like, oh, this is really, really weird. Revelation is describing, I think, metaphorically, how evil evil is. And how people, spiritually and physically, die. And it's important to note because it's really an old concept that's new again. It's really important to note what really condemns a person. It's evil. It's the deception that evil allows. Evil so deceives that the effect is like a marauding army, killing with wanton abandon. In real life, Evil's manifestation is often far more subtle than an army of 200 million horses that look like lions. What killed these people in this text? What separated them from God? The dividing line between those who are in Christ with the mark of God on their forehead and those who are not in Christ is whom they, who they are aligned with. And in light of the display, there is a response given by the people. Now, typically, the response given when you see overwhelming force is something along the lines of, whoa, that's, that is, I don't even have a place for that to go. I want to back away from that as quickly and as expeditiously as absolutely possible. But that's not the response that's given. It says that even though a third of the population died because of evil, no one changed. No one turned away. No one said, I want to get away as far away from that as possible. It's a simple word, really. The word is repent. It's a word that for some people it's really, it's got too much meaning to be helpful or too much baggage to be applicable, but it's a simple word. R repent just means to turn around. So say I'm walking towards this pillar, okay, inside of which there's a steel. If, if I don't repent before I hit it, I'm going to hurt myself, right? But if I repent, if I turn, okay, before I hit it, and even if after I hit it and I get my face a little bloodied, have to go and get a few stitches in, it's still okay as long as you repent and turn away from it. And that's the essence of repentance. It's walking towards something that is going to cause you pain, and you go, no, I think I'm going to go this way. And what the book of Revelation invites over and over again, what the entire Bible invites the created over to order to do over and over again is to repent. To turn from the things that are not of God to the things that are of God. 
It's a simple word. We don't have to be afraid of it. It's evaluating our lives, right? If we think in terms of the things that I like, that I want, that I'm entitled to, versus the things that God wants, that God likes, that God is entitled to, we might need to repent. Now, that's not to say the things that I like and the things that I want and the things that I'm entitled to necessarily have to be in conflict with the things that God wants and God likes and God is entitled to. No, not everything that we enjoy, not everything that we experience is bad. But when we start thinking inside in a defiant way, no, this is what I want. This is what I'm entitled to. These are what my rights allow me. We might just want to be a little bit careful and might want to adjust our thinking to consider the things that God wants, that God likes, that God is entitled to. I think if it was an army of 200 million horses that looked like lions, it would be easy for us to say, no, I don't want any part of that. But when the deception that exists in our own life isn't an army of 200 million, but the, only, the lies that we want to believe, the deception becomes very subtle. But it's no less devastating. And to turn from that deception to the one who does not want to deceive, to repent, to turn from death, and to embrace life, to ask of our own lives. This isn't anything that I'm laying on you. This is something I lay on myself. What things do I need to repent from? It all comes down to, are you more of an Old Testament guy or a New Testament gal? And yeah, I'm ripping off common here a little bit because we like to play this game, right? And we've talked about this on Sunday morning before, how we play this game of, oh, the God of the Old Testament is this God of fire and brimstone and junk, junk, junk. And the God of the New Testament is, is sweet and kind and gracious and loving and delightful. And so we play these two off against each other. It's like the God in the Old Testament is some reckless, bloodthirsty, can't make up his mind, adolescent playing a video game. Maybe I shouldn't have said that. And the God of the New Testament has aged, has become more mature, maybe has a little more gray in his hair, a little more gray in his beard, is more loving, more grace-filled, kinder. Beale, who we're using to help us through the book of Revelation, has been arguing since the introduction that you can't understand Revelation, you can't understand the new unless you understand the old. And that there is no dichotomy that exists between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God. They are the same God. So when you get the Old Testament, getting revelation is a bit easier. So in the Old Testament, here's what we have. We have God creating and God revealing himself to his creation, specifically to humans. Humans like you and me, although not first, because we weren't alive back then. God creates, God reveals, and God invites his created order, humans like you and me, and you and me to be in relationship with him. 
problem. The problem occurs because we humans like to do our own thing. And some of us say, yeah, God, I want to hang out with you. And some of us say, no, thanks, God, I don't want any part of you. And some of us make those two decisions in the exact same 24-hour period of time. God, I want to be with you. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. Yes, I do. No, I don't. And we fight internally. And God's like, follow me. Follow me. Ultimately saying, either follow me or you face the consequences of your actions, of your choices. Theologians might say, repent or experience the wrath of God. But the same message that's in the Old Testament is right here, smack dab at the end of the New Testament. The thing that separates these individuals in this chapter from God is that they don't follow God. Is that they don't churn from the things that they want to the things that God wants. So let's take the list. Now, a few of these are easy. Um, don't know if anyone here has committed murder in the last 24 hours. If you have, we have some law enforcement that would like to chat with you, and we can just help you out with that and just get that squared away. Although sometimes the way we treat people comes really close to killing them. Likewise, we probably don't have many sorcerers here, but if there is a sorcerer here practicing mag magic in a, a sorcery kind of way, we can certainly talk about that. But how about this sexual immorality thing? Did you know St. Benedict, okay, dude lived a long, long time ago, he was so overcome with thoughts of lust about a woman once that he stripped off all of his clothes and threw himself into a briar bush, a thorn bush? That'd do it. That would do it. How do I honor God through my expression of these things? How do I honor God through my expression of my sexuality? How do I honor God through my expression of what I do, of what I worship? Do I worship gold and silver? Do I worship money? Do I worship the things around me? Am I more into what I like and what I want and what I'm entitled to? Or am I more into the things that God wants, that God likes, that God is entitled to? It's really a simple message. It's really an old message made new again. The reality that God consistently and persistently comes to our lives and says, follow me, please, with everything that you have. Turn from the stuff that pulls you away from my heart. Come back to my heart. Come back to truth. Come back to grace. Come back to love. Come back to life. It's an old message that never grows tired. It's an old message that is made new every day. When we repent and turn to the God who created us, and the God who loves us.
Please pray with me. Father, to be sure, it can be a challenging thought. Not many of us like to admit that there's things wrong with us, although most of us, when we're honest, would admit there's many things wrong with us. In this moment of clarity, O oh great God, allow your spirit to apply a simple lens, a simple question to our lives. How do I honor you, God? How do I put you first? And to that question, perhaps the heart's cry. Allow me, Father, to repent and turn to you. Father, we thank you for this time. Spirit, we are grateful for your presence. Jesus, we are so delighted you would give your life for us. Amen.